Oh, well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here, and we are continuing our journey through the New Testament book called Philippians. It's actually a letter or an epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church that he had started. Our passage today will be found for you on page 10 in your order of worship there. It's also found on page 921 in the chair Bible there in front of you, that dark blue Bible, if you'd like to turn there. And if you're here today and you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one with you as our gift. We'd love for you to have that. So as you're turning there, uh, several years ago I had the opportunity to be in Birmingham, Alabama for a, a past a church planters cohort. And one of the activities we did was we went to the National Civil Rights Museum that's there in downtown Birmingham. It's right across the street from the famous 16th Street Baptist Church where Martin Luther King uh, Jr. was the pastor. And in that museum there, they have actually a replica ex- laid out exactly as it was, painted as best as they can figure from pictures of the day of the jail cell that MLK was in when he wrote his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. One of the clearest calls to gospel faithfulness in the midst of conflicting factions inside of Christianity. And I bring that up because much of the New Testament is also written from jail. Paul is writing the book of Philippians from house arrest in Rome. It is one of the many prison epistles that cover much of the New Testament. And in today's passage, Paul himself will also give a very clear call to gospel faithfulness in the midst of conflicting factions. So with that intro in mind, would you look with me now? Philippians chapter 1, as we look at verses 12 through 18 together. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now this is God's Word. Let's pray together. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You have chosen to reveal Yourself to us in Your Word, that we might know You exactly as You wish to be known. And so we pray, Father, as we come before Your Word today, that You would help us to submit to it. Open this text up to us by Your Spirit, that we may see our sin, our great need of the Gospel, and the beauty of Jesus as He's offered in the Gospel. We pray that you would do this, Father, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So just to give a little bit of context of Philippians about where we are in this book. So Paul planted this church in the Greek city of Philippi. We see that story back in Acts chapter 16, if you would like to look at that later. And then he left. And for 10 years, he was doing ministry all over the central Roman Empire, planting churches, leading churches, planting more churches, sending out missionaries, raising up elders, just doing the things that he's supposed to do as an apostle, as a church planter. But now he has been in prison, in prison for the last two years, 
and he receives financial support from this church, and so he writes to thank them for that, but he also gets a report about some issues going on in that congregation. There's conflict in the church. There's problems in the church, and so Paul writes to help them deal with these conflicts. Last week, we saw that Paul ended his introduction to this letter, to this group of people, with a prayer for them, where he specifically prays for two things. He prays that they would value people over issues, and then he prays that they would value their unity in Jesus over uniformity, all for the glory and praise of God. Now, as he gets into the letter proper, we'll call it, or the body of the letter, he actually shows that he's applying that exact same prayer to himself, to his own life and his own circumstances. We see that Paul exalts Jesus over the issues, and then Paul exalts Jesus over uniformity, all to the glory of God, because then Jesus prevails. In other words, this week Paul teaches, do as I pray and as I do. And we're going to see that it's advancing the gospel. That's what matters to Paul. And so he rejoices when Jesus prevails, even if it means that Paul doesn't prevail in that moment. And that gets us to our theme for today, kind of what I want to orbit around today. What this passage is ultimately about is this one uh, sentence theme here. It's this. That since Christians rejoice when Jesus wins, we don't mind losing. Or at least we aspire to not mind losing, right? Well, let's jump in and see what, what the passage has for us today. So we see right away that the gospel advances because Jesus brings boldness. He starts out at the beginning of verse 12, says, hey, I want you to know. And it's not just a nice little statement. This is actually a formal phrase used in Roman era letters. You can look this up. It means, okay, I'm done with the introduction. Now I'm going to tell you why I'm actually writing to you today. What, I'm, what is my concern? And typically you're supposed to talk about yourself at this point. But Paul, if you notice, talks about the gospel instead. He doesn't say, I want you to know how I'm doing. He says, I want you to know, y'all in the Philippian church, that the gospel is advancing. Last week, if you remember, he prayed that they would see, that they would be able to discern what really matters, what is actually important, what is worth perhaps having conflict over, and what is not. And here, Paul tells them, here's what really matters, Jesus and the gospel, I don't know if you picked up on it in one quick reading, but he mentions the gospel. He mentions Jesus in every single verse in this text today. At the end of verse 12, he says it's the advance of the gospel. At the end of verse 13, it's for Christ. At the end of verse 14, he wants to speak the word. Beginning of verse 15, preach Christ. End of verse 16, of the gospel. Beginning of verse 17, proclaim Christ. And then there in the middle of verse 18, Christ is proclaimed. Every single verse. He's like, it's Jesus. It's the gospel. It's not about Paul. It's about him and what the gospel is doing. And if you know Paul's particular context, this is even so much more amazing because the last two years of Paul's life have not been the picture for the health and wealth prosperity gospel. He has not been living his best life then. If you don't know the story, Paul is ministering and he has this collection of financial aid he wants to take to the church in Jerusalem, which is under persecution and the saints are suffering, they're in poverty. He wants to take this gift and he's told over and over again, they're going to get you in Jerusalem. Don't go. You're going to be arrested. And Paul's like, 
probably, but I'm supposed to go. And so Paul goes, he's promptly arrested. This group of zealots decide that it's not good enough that he's arrested. They're going to invade the barracks where he's being kept, kill all the Romans, and kill Paul because he has got to go. The Romans hear about it, so they gather all their soldiers and they have to escort Paul to somewhere else because they're so afraid of him being assassinated. Then he spends month after month after month going through the Roman judicial bureaucracy, having hearing after hearing after hearing. Finally gets on a ship, travels across the Mediterranean Sea, gets stuck in a storm, ship breaks up, he's in the sea, having to swim to dry land. They all gather together. Paul's helping clean up, put some sticks together. A snake jumps out, bites him on the hand. It's been a tough time. Okay? This is not how you like, get people to go on a mission trip by giving them this description, right? They finally make it to Rome. Paul has to pay his own rent as a prisoner. He can't leave the house, and he's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's what Paul's doing, and Paul's like, hey, guess what, y'all? All of that has been for the advance of the gospel. God is using all of these difficulties for the gospel. And to give him an example, he says, even the famous praetorian guard, the ESV translates it imperial, it's a proper noun, the praetorian guard, it was the equivalent of their secret service, 9,000 strong elite troops whose entire job was to guard Caesar and guard his household and guard important political prisoners of which Paul was deemed one. Paul says, all of these guys know why I'm actually here. We later learn in, in parts of Philippians that even people in Caesar's own household become Christians. They know the gospel. God has used Paul's imprisonment to take the gospel where it would never have gone through these difficulties and these trials. And in making this description, Paul kind of slips this little gem in there I want us to zoom in on. Let's look together at verse 13, where he says, I want you to know that my imprisonment is for Christ. It's literally my chains are in Christ. There's a double meaning here. First of all, he is bound by Rome. He's in chains, literally, because Paul makes the claim, Jesus is Lord. You and I, after 2,000 years of Christianity, we hear that and we spiritualize it. The original readers would not have spiritualized it. Lord was a political title. It meant king. It meant master. A good Roman citizen would say Caesar is Lord. For Paul to say Jesus is Lord actually justifies his imprisonment. He was a potential insurgent. So that little phrase there, well, the whole Praetorian Guard knows I'm in jail for Jesus, is not them being sympathetic. It's him saying it's justified because I don't say Caesar is Lord. But there's also something else going on here when he says, in Christ. My chains are in Christ, not for Christ. And I want you to feel this one. So a couple years ago, I'm a big college football fan. Not so much college basketball, but hey, when things are winning, I'm a Fairweather fan, I'll watch. Baylor made it to the Final Four a couple years ago. I was like, hey, okay, I can watch this little orange ball do boring things. Sure. So watch this game. And Baylor ends up winning the whole thing. They're the national champions of 2021. I was like, okay, yay, I'll wear my bow tie every once in a while, sure. My brother-in-law, though, goes nuts. And he starts buying Baylor swag for the whole family. We had this big old box show up, had t-shirts and mugs and socks and all sorts of crazy stuff. And he's like, and there's a little note, hey, wear it with pride. And that's what Paul is saying here about his chains. He says, look at these chains. They're in Christ. See, everybody thinks I'm Rome's prisoner. I'm actually Jesus' prisoner. 
These are his chains. I wear them with pride. These handcuffs are my Jesus swag. And Paul tells us that that confidence, that boldness is actually contagious. Look with me at verse 14. He says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Did you catch it? He said it wrong. He's supposed to say, in spite of my chains, they're bold. That's not what he says, is it? He says, because of my chains. See, you and I were like, ooh, something bad happened to him. But in spite of that, God will use it. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, this is bad, and because it's bad, it's caused boldness. It makes no sense unless God is bringing supernatural courage to his people through this. In fact, it tells us that it says people are more confident. We could even translate that they are trusting in the Lord more. See, even if something bad happens, they see Paul's joy. They see Paul says he's wearing Jesus chains. You know what? If I get to wear chains too, there'll be Jesus chains as well. I can deal with that. That makes me bold to see these are not Roman chains. These are Jesus chains. You see, for those of us who are Christians, so much of the time at the base of our fears It's a lack of confidence for the Lord to fix it for us, isn't it? It's a lack of trust that he'll make it okay. Imagine how fruitful we could be if we would look at our trials as being in Jesus, just like Paul looks at his chains. Well, boys and girls, especially since you don't have kids worship today, I want to make sure you're tracking with me, okay? So let's pull out your bulletin. And here at the bottom of your page, boys and girls, let's look at your verse 12 through 14. It says this. It says, I want you all to understand that my arrest has been really good for the gospel. All the special soldiers guarding me and all my visitors know that I'm in jail for Jesus. Because I'm wearing Jesus' handcuffs, most of the Christians in Rome are now fearlessly speaking God's word word. You see, boys and girls, often when the thing you're most afraid of happens, it's not as bad as you thought. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul didn't want to be arrested, but once he was, he's like, you know what? God wants me to be in these chains. It's okay, and he gives me joy in them. You see, boys and girls, when we do what God wants us to do, even when it hurts, he gives us joy, even as it hurts. And so we see here that the gospel advanced in Rome because Jesus brought boldness. The next thing we see is we see that the gospel advances because Jesus uses conflict. This one's a little more difficult, so I want to reread together verses 15 through 17 so we can get our minds wrapped around this. Paul says this. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So this boldness here has a downside, right? Some of these fearless Christians from verse 14 are preaching out of, it says, envy. They're preaching out of rivalry. We could translate that they're preaching out of jealousy. They're preaching out of quarreling. And I got to tell you, as I'm working through this this week, I desperately wanted to find a way to make these guys be false teachers because that puts it in a nice little bow, easy to explain away, right? But I can't do that. Paul doesn't call them that. 
In fact, look at me. Verse 15, he says, they preach Christ. Verse 17, he says, they proclaim Christ. And then there's no way in verse 18 he would be rejoicing if they were false teachers. Paul further clarifies in verse 17, saying they preach out of selfish ambition. It's the idea of partisanship, or it's the idea of from a faction, like building a group, a tribe, a faction. He says they, they don't preach out of sincerity to the gospel, but they preach, why? To afflict Paul. It means what you think it does. They want to hurt Paul while he's in prison, to cause him pain while he's in chains. Please, is there a way we can make these people false teachers, right? This is no good. Well, let me explain kind of what's going on. Here's, what's, here's kind of what's happening here. So about 15 years ago in our denomination, there was this theological conflict that was tearing through our denomination. And in its worst forms, it was absolutely a denial of the gospel and needed to be defeated. But in its mundane, average way that it typically popped up, it was just a nuisance and it was unhelpful, but it wasn't that dangerous. But still, it needed to be dealt with. And so since one of the main ringleaders of this thing was in the same town I was in, I became part of the team that was officially trying to purge this thing out of our denomination. And we won at every level because we were right, and this is a big, important issue. But at the end of the day, after years and years and it got settled down, I actually reached back out to this guy. And I actually repented to him and asked for his forgiveness, not because I was on the wrong side of the issue. I wasn't. He's still wrong, and I, told, I still told him that. And not because it wasn't important. It was, and I told him that too. But here's what I had to repent of. Through that whole 14, 15-month process that was a conflict and a battle, I approached the whole situation not as if he were my brother who needed correction. He was an adversary who needed defeated. And that's not how you fight for Jesus. And that's not how you honor Jesus. We were true. We were proven right. But we kind of fought, not dirty, but just we weren't concerned for him. We were concerned to beat his faction. And that's what's happening right here in Paul. There's a pro-Paul faction and there's an anti-Paul faction. We're not told why. We're not told what the issue is. We just know that it's there. The book of Corinthians, we know, for instance, Paul talks to them when there's conflict. He says, look, some of y'all are saying you're on Barnabas' side. Some of you are saying you're on Paul's side. He's like, there's no side. We're all on the same team. So there's some sort of division, some sort of anti-pro-Paul faction. There we go. And these preachers are preaching Jesus accurately and faithfully and truthfully, but they're doing it somehow to make it hurt Paul. I don't know. Complete speculation. Well, if Paul's doing so good. How come he's in prison? I'm preaching Jesus. I'm not in prison. Well, Paul's probably doing something else, you know, and God's going to get him for that. I'm just I'm speculating. It's not in the text, but who knows? We don't know. But they want to take Paul down a notch or two. We do know that. They want to afflict him and hurt him. Here's how I put it for the kids in their verse 17, so maybe we can all understand it better. Let's look at verse 17 of the kids. It says this. It says, those others preach Jesus like I'm on a different team. They want to bug me while I'm in jail. Now, I want to be clear here. The fact that there's conflict is not the problem. The problem is how these Christians are treating each other. Theological conflict has been one of the main tools Jesus has used to purge and, and clean up his church. For example, if you've ever wondered, why does the New Testament look the way it does? Why do we have these books and not others? Okay, don't read Dan Brown's trash. It's not 
anything accurate. Instead, you can look at church history and you can see, oh, it was a theological fight for like 80 years trying to figure out what's the New Testament, which books are authoritative, which aren't. How about this one? The word Trinity, not in the Bible, yet we sing it, we pray it, we preach it. Where'd that come from? That came from a hundred years of conflict and battle back and forth. The person of Jesus. How, how, do, how can someone be fully God and fully man? It makes no sense. How do, where do we get that from? It came from conflict over decades. The gospel itself, salvation by grace through faith. Lost for 600 plus years. How was it restored? Through conflict and battle and strife. Jesus uses conflict to purify his church. And so Paul is saying, look, there's conflict here, but look, Jesus is still winning. Jesus still prevails. But thankfully, there's also good news, right? Because it's not always conflict. Paul notes that there are Christians in Rome who are preaching out of goodwill, who love Paul, who know that he is in chains for Jesus. But the most telling part, the most important part, is how Paul sees it. What does Paul say? Look with me at verse 18. Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. You know, it's so easy to fall into an adversarial spirit with other Christians, isn't it? It shouldn't be that easy, but you know it is, isn't it? especially when the errors of other Christians just seem so obvious to you, right? And so you can start preaching or teaching or carrying yourself in a way that's true to the gospel, but it's also dominated by criticism of the other factions who have it wrong, right? See, what happens is we take, there are certain key things, there are certain key tenets that if you don't believe these, you're not a Christian. And that's fine, but let's just be intellectually honest. If you don't believe these things, you're not a Christian. Those are called primary issues. But then there's a bunch of secondary issues that, you know what? Christians can disagree on. And the problem is what we do. We really believe in this secondary issue, so we take it and we put it in the primary column, right? And we start saying, if you don't believe this thing, you're not on our team anymore. You're not a Christian. You're not mature. I judge you. I get to judge you. Maybe you'll, you know, here, read this book, listen to this podcast, come on our team, and then we'll think you're one of us. And we can do it with tertiary issues, and we can do it with even minor issues, can't we? See, Paul is too enthralled with Jesus to be preoccupied with that junk. He literally says at the beginning of verse 18, we could translate this most faithfully, so what? They're, ooh, they're preaching Jesus in a way that hurts me. They're preaching Jesus. I don't care. See, Paul's like, it's better to be wrong in motive and right in message. Paul exalts Jesus over uniformity. He's like, they don't have to be in the pro-Paul camp. They don't have to follow me lock in step. Paul doesn't care why they preach Jesus as long as they do. And he rejoices because Jesus prevails. He doesn't mind losing because Jesus is winning. And he sees that Jesus has advanced the gospel through this very boldness and conflict, and so he rejoices. You know, as we wrap this up, what we see here in Paul is that when we hold Jesus as primary, really everything else becomes secondary or even lower. You know, we Christians, if we look at this carefully, 
We're not to be known for our exacting standards. We're not to be known for our intense pressure for behavior modification, right? Act like this. Those are all distractions. What Paul shows us here is that, no, we let our agendas lose so Jesus can win. See, what's going on here is Paul is setting up the principles by which he will start to address the specific conflicts taking place in this very real church. He's prayed for their unity. He's prayed for their discernment about what really matters. Now he's showing them what really matters, and then he's going to start applying this to this specific situation. There are conflicts in the Philippian church. And those conflicts arise from factions in the church making things other than Jesus of primary importance. And Paul can do that because he's sitting there wearing Jesus' chains. His life is defined by his union with Jesus, and so everything else is of lesser importance to him. You know, in Mark 9, Jesus himself modeled this first before Paul modeled it. There's a famous story. Jesus was approached by his disciples like, dude, this guy over there, Jesus, is doing stuff in your name, and he's not one of us. He's not, he's not wearing our jersey. We tried to stop him for you. And Jesus, very famous, Mark 9, 40, you can, also, all, you can just about see him you know, rubbing his forehead, his eyes twitching. He's like, anyone not against us is for us. See, Jesus refused to enforce this uniformity among his followers. And united to Jesus by faith, Paul is able to live that out. Paul is joyful to lose if it means Jesus wins. And you and I, dear believer, when we are united to Jesus by faith, we're empowered to lose so Jesus can win as well. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, we're empowered not to have to make sure we win anymore. We're set free from all those other things that we put our confidence in, that we put our trust in, and so we no longer have to defend them. It's okay if they lose because we don't mind it anymore because Jesus wins. We don't split with people over these things anymore because they're not that important. Jesus is more important. See, instead, we can hold these things loosely because Jesus holds us tightly and that makes us bold for him. In Jesus, we can actually have joy when our stuff loses, if it means Jesus wins. That's what Paul's getting at. So I just want to end by asking a really simple question. Do you want to have less conflict in your life? in your family, in your country? When you place your faith in Jesus, you're able to let that stuff go because Christians rejoice when Jesus wins and so we don't mind losing. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, this is a hard text And Lord, I confess that I put so much importance on things that are not primary. I stand on so many secondary issues. And I judge others who aren't as right on them as I am. Lord, would you forgive me? Would you make me willing to lose so that Jesus can win? 
And Lord, I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in that prayer. So would you give us, Lord, the strength to pray that prayer and mean it? Lord, we pray that you would set us free. Those of us who know you already, would you set us free from placing so much importance on things that truly aren't important? That with Paul, we would be able to say, so what, as long as Jesus is proclaimed. And Lord, we do pray that as Jesus has been proclaimed today, that you be true to your promise to draw all people to him. Even now, Lord, would you cause many to repent and believe. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.